When do born-again believers first receive the grace of God into their hearts and lives? The answer may amaze you. What scripture concerning grace does the secular world almost always get wrong? The answer to that question will empower you. And finally, why can heirs of the grace of life refer to God's grace as his one way or the other plan? That answer will edify you greatly. All of these questions will be answered on this episode of Discover Your Spiritual Identity. It's time to discover your spiritual identity with your host, Mike Shreve. There are hundreds of names and titles given to God's people that powerfully reveal who you are, why you exist, and what your purpose is in this world. Each one pulls back the veil of a different aspect of who you are in Christ. Once you learn these names and titles and apply them to your life, you will rise up boldly to be all that God has called you to be. Are you ready? Here's Mike Shree. The grace of God is one of the most powerful, inspirational, and transformational subjects to be found in God's Word. In fact, I don't want to even call it finding this doctrine in God's Word. You unearth the treasure, and it enriches your life beyond description. And so I knew that I could not contain that revelation in just one episode. And so last week, we began our journey into what it is to be heirs of the grace of life. That's a name given to us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. And this week and next week, we're going to be continuing in this vein. And you could call it a mother load, a vein of gold. Are you ready to strike gold? Because we're going to do it on this program. Now remember, 1 Peter 3, 7 calls us heirs of the grace of life. I love the fact that life is attached to the name because we are surrounded with death-dealing influences in this world that cause mental death, emotional death, spiritual death, physical death, and ultimately eternal death. And so we are in a battle for our lives, but the grace of God has been given to us to combat those influences. So we need to understand what it is. I don't care how far you have drifted from God. One of the most popular Christian songs of all time is the song Amazing Grace. I would dare to say there's hardly a Christian in the United States for certain and probably the entire world that has not been familiar with that song and probably sung it many times. I have probably thousands of times, but not as many know the history of that song. It was written in 1772 by the English poet and Anglican clergyman John Newton. But John Newton was not always a minister of the gospel. In fact, he had quite a sordid past. He was a slave trader. And I think of all the things human beings can do, trafficking, slave trading is one of the most corrupt and despicable practices you can find. Now, there's a couple of different stories about how he experienced salvation. Apparently, he heard George Whitfield preach, and 
didn't want anything to do with it. But then he got caught in a storm at sea where it looked like their boat was going to go under, their ship rather was going to go under. And he realized at that moment how he had mistreated others so terribly and how unworthy and evil he really was. And so he pled with God that if he would just rescue them from the storm, he would repent and change his life. And of course, we know the story. He did. He was converted. And he wrote the song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me because he felt unsavable. He had lived such a horrible past. And yet the grace of God can reach you no matter how deep you go into sin, no matter how far you fall away from the truth. The grace of God can rescue you. Maybe that's why Hebrews 13.9 says that it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace and not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. And the beginning of that verse says, do not be carried away with strange and diverse doctrines. Don't be carried away with all these ideas that are not really fruit-bearing ideas that people base on the Word of God. And I'm sure you've heard a lot of scriptural arguments about this and about that that don't really edify, that don't really advance the kingdom of God, that don't really bless your heart. It just causes uh, a creation of chaos theologically. And the writer of Hebrews, who I believe to be Paul, said, don't be carried away with all those strange and diverse doctrines. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace. It's better to live here than to live here. And it's better that your heart be stabilized by a correct revelation of the grace of God than just about any other thing I could unearth from God's word. Now, Grace can empower you to take on huge challenges in life and fulfill them. Because not only is grace unmerited love, grace is divinely imparted ability. And that means God invests power in you. God pours his own power into you so that you can accomplish that which is beyond your capacity as a normal human being. And I believe that's illustrated in an incredible, phenomenal way in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Because Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 says it this way, and this is from the complete Jewish Bible, that we see Yeshua, we see Jesus, who indeed was made for a little while lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by God's grace he might taste death for all humanity. Can you imagine the enormity of what Jesus faced when he went to the cross? That the curse of death that should have fallen on multiplied billions of people converged on one spot and one moment in time when Jesus, the Son of God, hung on the cross and by the grace of God, he tasted death for every man, wrestling with it. He overcame it and rose up victoriously three days later. 
If it took God's grace for the perfect, sinless Son of God to face off with that arch enemy of the human race, then it will take the grace of God for you and for me to face off with our enemies in life. Demonic attacks, the lower nature, the sinful world around us, and the death that results from yielding to any of those three things. If Jesus could rise victoriously, you can rise victoriously, but he did it by the grace of God. And if he who was sinless needed God's grace to overcome, you and I who have been sin prone in the past need God's grace to overcome. Now, I'm going to ask you four extremely important questions. And I'll give you a moment to think about it to see if you can respond with the correct answer before I go ahead and fill in the blanks. Number one, when did you first receive the grace of God? Think about it. Ponder that for a moment. When did you first receive the grace of God? Some might be thinking, well, the day I got saved. Others might be thinking, no, no, no. The day I came into this world when I was born, God knew I would eventually surrender to him, so he applied grace to my life then. If that was your response, either of those two, you were wrong. And I know that sounds a little shocking, but that's not the correct answer. 2 Timothy 1.9 says that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which were given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. How profound is that? Before there was an orb spinning in space called the planet Earth, before there was a solar system with the sun at its center, before there was a Milky Way galaxy containing our solar system, when everything was void and empty and dark, you existed in the mind of God. And God, in anticipation of every valley you would ever face, every mountain you would ever climb, every challenge you would ever come to, every fault you would ever be guilty of, in advance from the beginning or beyond the beginning, gave you a sufficient amount of grace to go through every valley, to climb every mountain, to overcome every adversary, and to emerge victorious at the end of your life. He gave that to you in Christ before time began, because you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. If I stopped right now, that's enough to shout about the rest of this day. Praise God. Number two, second very important question. What is the most misinterpreted scripture concerning grace? Even by the secular media, quite often you hear it on television, on newscasts, where they use this particular phrase and it's absolutely misapplied. Think about it. It is the idea of a person falling from grace. And usually it is used concerning someone who is a notable personality, a respected personality, an influential personality, and that person 
is caught in some kind of compromising situation or exposed as having done something unethical or illegal. And quite often people say he or she fell from grace. Well, in one sense, it's true that they fell from the grace, the acceptance, the favor of the masses of people that nearly idolized those individuals, and they were no longer as loved and appreciated by the people. But that really comes from a biblical passage that means something quite different. Falling from grace in Paul's writings means a lot, a lot more, and it has a totally different connotation than falling from grace according to the way it's used commonly. Let me read Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. When he says yoke of bondage, he's referring to the bondage of the law, the 613 commandments of the Torah, and how the Jewish people felt absolutely driven to fulfill all those commandments lest they fall short of a standing of righteousness in the sight of God. And Paul called it a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised, he's a debtor to do the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Now think about that for just a moment. Falling from grace, therefore, is not falling into sin, falling into some immorality or dishonesty. Falling from grace is falling from this pinnacle of provision that God has led us to. Picture it as a mountain peak in your mind that you can actually inherit the righteousness of God. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Who would dare try to be any more righteous than that? How could you even come halfway to that goal by your own efforts? that you become the righteousness of God, that's a pinnacle of victory over the lower nature and over the curse that came upon you at birth, the original sin that was passed on to you. You're wrenching yourself free from all of that by going to the cross, receiving the gift of righteousness, according to Romans 5, 17, and you become just as righteous in the sight of heaven as Jesus, the firstborn son. But If you start thinking, well, I've got to do this to be righteous, and I've got to do that to be righteous. If you were Jewish and thought, well, I need to to go back to the Torah and fulfill all the 613 commandments to be righteous, you are falling down that mountainside to the lowlands of religious legalism because you're trying to be righteous by your own effort. You're trying to be righteous by your own good works. And the Bible says, by grace you're saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. 
not of works, lest any man should boast. So falling from grace is not unrighteousness, it's self-righteousness. It's falling from this place of imparted righteousness down to the lowlands of an attempt to be righteous through self-effort. And so it's a religious kind of self-righteousness that people fall to. And when that happens, it robs you of the joy of what grace is. It's unmerited love. It starts out as unmerited love. The day you get saved, it continues the rest of your life, the rest of your journey through this world, the rest of your walk with God as unmerited love. And once you start thinking you've got to merit it, you've muddied the waters. So that's the most misinterpreted scripture about grace. Number three, the third question I have to ask you. What are the two erroneous extremes that people carry the beautiful doctrine of grace to? The two erroneous extremes. In other words, the way they interpret grace is carried to an extreme that is incorrect. The truth is balanced in between these two extremes. Do you know what they are? I can describe them with one word. One extreme is legalism. The other extreme is liberalism. And I'm going to give you the scriptures that relate to it. Galatians 2.21 in the King James Version, Paul said, I do not frustrate the grace of God. If righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. The Messiah went to the cross in vain. What a powerful statement. I do not frustrate the grace of God. What frustrates you? I know the thing that I can get most frustrated over is asking for something to be done a certain way. And then when it's done, I found out that the person who did it, did it completely different than what I directed them to do. Now that's frustrating. And I think God gets frustrated about the same thing. He gave us grace to make us righteous. Grace reigns through righteousness. In other words, grace shows its power to grant dominion through righteousness. And then we try to do it our way. And isn't that the mistake Eve made in the beginning? To be like God, but choosing the wrong path to get there. Because the enemy said, you shall be like God, knowing good and evil. So let me read it again, but I'm going to use a different version. The English majority text version says, I do not annul the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Wow. In other words, you do away with the cross. You say, I don't need the cross to be righteous. I can attain it by my own religious works. The complete Jewish Bible says it this way, I do not reject God's gracious gift. For if the way in which one attains righteousness is through legalism, then the Messiah's death was pointless. I think I've proved my point. That reverting back to things like circumcision, Judaism rituals, keeping the feast days, and the 613 commandments of the Torah, none of these will ever make you righteous. Not to the extreme degree that grace does. Now, of course, 
many of the commandments in the Torah, many of those 613 are no longer required of us, but some of them are commandments we should follow, like the 10 commandments. And yet, you can fulfill all 10 commandments until fall short of where grace can take you. So we need to learn that. Romans 3, 24, 25 says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. And that word propitiation means satisfaction for the demands of justice. Justice demanded that you and I should die for our sins. But Jesus became the satisfaction for the demands of justice so that you and I could be justified freely. Not justice, but justification. And to be justified means to be delivered, to be set free from all guilt, just as if we never sinned, just as if the error never took place in our life, to be freely delivered from all guilt and shame, as if we never committed those atrocities, those evil deeds, those things that were against God's law. Amazing that justification could come to us through grace. Praise God for that. You may say, well, then I don't need to live a righteous life. I can just live however I want to. I did not say that. I did not say that because there's another extreme that people take the beautiful doctrine of grace to, and that is liberalism. And the Bible exposes that too. It doesn't leave it lopsided on the side of legalism. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, it talks about those who once were serving God, but they trampled underfoot the Son of God and count the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified and a common thing or something that's not as sacred as the blood of Jesus really should be in our hearts and minds but they count the blood of the covenant by which we were sanctified an unclean thing and a common thing. And we insult the spirit of grace. Okay. If a person tramples on the blood of Jesus and considers that death on the cow on Calvary, something to be forgotten, if it's not convenient to embrace that when sin or indulging in sin is the thing that most compels that person, then they, according to this scripture, insult the spirit of grace. Another version of that says insult and outrage the spirit of grace. The King James Version says to do despite unto the spirit of grace, to treat it in a way that you despise the price that Jesus paid for you. And how do you do that? By just walking on in uncleanness and debauchery and low life kind of ways of living. You insult the grace of God. You outrage the grace of God. And Jude talked about it too in chapter one, verses three and four. He said, we should earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And in that particular passage, faith doesn't mean the ability to believe. It means the sum total of the principles that we embrace as sons and daughters of God who have a biblical worldview. He said, we should earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. Now listen to verse four. 
in Jude chapter 1. Only one chapter in that book. There are certain men crept in unawares who before of old were ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean to turn the grace of God into lasciviousness? Lasciviousness means unrestrained lust, living in a very lewd way, in a very unclean way, and yet saying grace covers it. It's all right. I've been saved. I got baptized when I was a teenager. It's all right for me to live this way. I just claim the grace of God. No, in order to receive grace, you have to have that marriage of three attitudes I talked about in the last episode. By grace, you're saved through faith. Faith is necessary. But the Bible says God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble, 1 Peter 5, 5. So you have to have humility before God. And certainly the proud, arrogant person that says grace will cover my sin is not humble before God. And Ephesians 6, 24 says grace be with all those who love the Lord Jesus Christ with sincerity. And he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So a sign that you're really in love with the Lord is you seek to keep his commandments, not to be righteous, but out of gratitude to the fact that you are made righteous by the grace of God. So there's a marriage of two extremes. I certainly don't want to frustrate the grace of God, nor do I want to insult and outrage the grace of God. And so there's got to be a balance between the two extremes, between legalism and liberalism. And there is. Because you receive the grace of God in such a way that you always marvel, you always stand in awe at the majesty and the miraculousness of what God has done in your life, that he's made you righteous with the righteousness of God. You extend worship to him the rest of your days over that. And even if you do walk a very sanctified, dedicated, consecrated walk, where you live a holy life, you never take the credit for it yourself. You always point to the cross and to the gift of grace that has come in your life. And all that righteousness that you strive to attain to, you do so as an act of worship, as an act of gratitude, as an expression of love to the God who has changed your life. Now, I have one other thing I want to ask. The fourth question is this. Why can we call grace God's one way or the other plan? Why can we call God's grace the one way or the other plan? Now, first, I need to remind you once again, the first two definitions of four definitions of grace I gave you in the last episode are, number one, grace is unmerited love from God, but number two, Grace is divinely imparted ability. It's God infusing your spirit with divinely awakened ability to accomplish his purpose in your life. So it has two very different yet very um, connected meanings because those two things fused together are a marriage that make you victorious in life. Why do we call God's grace a one way or the other plan, though. Let me take you to Romans 6.14. It says, Sin shall not have dominion over you, 
for you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, if you were under the law, sin would have dominion over you because it's just about impossible for, well, it is impossible for any human being to flawlessly keep the law, the 613 commandments of the Torah, 365 negative commandments, 248 positive commandments, God telling you to do certain things or not to do certain things. No one could flawlessly keep the law. And Deuteronomy 27, 26 says, Cursed be he that confirms not all the words of this law to do them. So that curse was hovering over all those who embraced the law that said, if you don't keep all the words of the law, a curse is going to come upon your life. That was wonderful but terrible to know that revelation in that era. So how does grace change that whole scenario? And why do I call it God's one way or the other plan? Because the first thing grace does when grace makes its entrance into your life is to give you the power to live above sin. Titus said it this way, the grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So when grace comes into our lives, it's a teacher, and it teaches us to live soberly and righteously and godly and empowers us to do so. God gives you the grace to live above the urges that used to overpower your mind that used to draw you into a trap of sin. And now you've been delivered where the regenerated spirit in you is stronger than the lower nature that used to dominate your life. So sin shall no longer have dominion over you because you have the power to live above it. But if by chance you falter, if by chance you fall, grace hasn't stopped working with you. Grace, in a good kind of way, changes its face. And instead of being imparted ability that gives you the power to live above sin, it becomes unmerited love that helps you recover from sin and lifts you out of the mire and the muck and the evil and restores you to a status of righteousness. So, one way or the other, grace will prevail for you as long as you keep those three heart attitudes that keep the grace of God flowing into your life like a river. Two last scriptures, and then I'm going to close. Acts 4.33 says, in the early church, the days right after Pentecost, that with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Not just grace, but when the new covenant was birthed into being, it was like a deluge. After centuries and millennia of being under the law, now the windows of heaven open and great grace pours out like a downpour. Do it again, God. (laughs) We are surrounded with such darkness and confusion and chaos in this world. We need great grace again. And I remind you of Romans 11:5, how the Bible talked about Elijah's day, and it's going to be similar in our day, that there will be a great falling away, just as there was in Elijah's day, where 
Many of those who should have been true to the revelation of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob fell away into idolatry and the worship of Baal. And Elijah was complaining, saying, I'm the only one God. And God said, I've got a remnant. There are 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. And Paul went on to explain there is even now a remnant according to the election of grace. Because grace gives you the power to stand when the world around you is crumbling. And I pray that for you today. The grace of God. Our calling to be heirs of the grace of life. How powerful is that? Thank you for listening to Discover Your Spiritual Identity with Mike Shreve, a podcast designed to cause a spiritual awakening in your life. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can go deeper into this amazing revelation of the names God has given his people by getting your copy of Mike Shreve's book titled, Who Am I? Dynamic Declarations of Who You Are in Christ. We also invite you to visit our website, shreveministries.org, and sign up to be part of our global internet family, a group of on-fire believers who are bold to proclaim, I am who God says I am, I have what God says I have, and I will be what God says I will be.